0: Welcome to ASCP's podcast, Inside the Lab, where we discuss anything and everything that concerns today's laboratory professionals and pathologists. My name is Dan Milner, and I'm the Chief Medical Officer at ASCP and one of your hosts.
1: Hey, everybody. My name is Kelly Swales, and I'm also one of your co-hosts. I'm an ASCP-certified medical technologist and the Executive Editor of Journals at ASCP. So today, we're going to be talking a little bit about the history of pathology and laboratory medicine. We've got a couple of very exciting guests, and I'll let them introduce themselves.
2: My name is Sanjay Mukhopadhyay, I'm the um, director of pulmonary pathology at the Cleveland Clinic. Thank you for having me.
3: And I'm Wes Schreiber. I'm a professor at the University of British Columbia, Department of Pathology and Lab Medicine. And I'm the clinical director of chemistry at Life Labs, which is the largest private reference laboratory in Canada.
1: Wait a minute, we've got a Canadian on here? No one told me that.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I'm, I'm a dual citizen, I can go either way.
1: Oh, there you go. Okay, okay. All right, well, I've just got a little bit of housekeeping out of the way, and we'll get started with the discussion. First off, thanks, everyone, for joining us. I need to tell everyone that CME and CMLE will be available for listening to this podcast in the ASCP store. The American Society for Clinical Pathology is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. ASCP designates this enduring material for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Physicians should only claim credit commiserate with the extent of their participation in the activity. All right, guys, uh, thanks again once again for joining us. First question, I kind of want to talk a little bit about how the practice of anatomic pathology has moved from an entirely subjective individual opinions-based kind of practice to now a standardized evidence-based practice Mm -hmm. where we actually, you know, can render consistent diagnoses. Kind of who are the pioneers in realizing this modern approach and how did they do it?
2: That's a great question, Kelly. It's very, very difficult to answer. And <laughs> let me <laughs> you you know
1: let's just start off with the hard question first, right?
2: <laughs> the hardest one first. But let me push back a little bit on that, Kelly. Like I do understand the, the gist of your question, which is that things are becoming more standardized. There is a, a little more objectivity to the diagnosis. But I will say that anatomic pathology is inherently a subjective diagnosis. You know, it's inherently a morphology-based, meaning two people look at the same thing and interpret it differently. And that the gist of that is really not going to change no matter what. And I think that even with that degree of subjectivity, we've managed to provide a service to, to the clinical field, which is really amazing. It's amazing the degree of objectivity that we provide, even though there is subjectivity inherent in our discipline. Now, having said that, I think two things have really led to a marked increase in the amount of sort of scientific rigor to our discipline, and those are immunohistochemistry and molecular pathology. And I think those two things over the years have really pushed us in a direction where we have been able to decrease a little bit the, the degree of subjectivity. So I was, you know, in looking back at who are the pioneers in that, it's just impossible to, to summarize that because it's such a long history. You know, typically what happens, it starts off with basic scientists and basic scientists gradually improve the technology. And at some point it becomes so user friendly that then surgical pathologists can use the technology. So I, I would say that pioneer there was Albert Coons. Back in 1941, was the first one to use immunofluorescence, and after that, many people—Sternberger, Spicer, Nakani, Singer, Avramayas, there are many people who gradually improved the technology. And then I think, from from my reading, the point at which immunohistochemistry really came onto the forefront in pathology, you know, in diagnostic pathology, was in the 80s, early 80s. If you look at the literature there, I think Harold Stein from uh, Germany if I'm not mistaken stands out as one of the pioneers at that time you know look using immunohistochemistry and lymphoma diagnosis but there are many many others you know too many to name but I'd say Harold Stein was one of the pioneers Carol A. Mackin and then once immunohistochemistry got introduced many many pathologists took it over and, and introduced it and then if you look at molecular it's the same thing you know there are many many basic scientists who started off using molecular diagnosis. I mean, you can go all the way back to Watson and Crick in 1953, you know, and right. all the Nobel Prize winners since then. Sanger sequencing in 1976, Gary Mullis in 1983 for PCR, Quang Trong, my apologies if I'm not pronouncing that right, in 1999 for fish, and Bert Vogelstein. So those were the scientists. And then once molecular pathology came into the mainstream, there are many, many big names. I think Vogelstein is a big one. Jonathan Fletcher at Harvard is another big one. But, you know, there are just too many people to name. There's so many, you know, it's been such an incremental process.
0: Yeah, and I, and I think, you know, from my personal experience, you mentioned Jonathan Fletcher, who, very good friend of mine, no relation to Christopher Fletcher, also at Harvard. And I would say if you if you look in subspecialty areas, for example, in soft tissue, Everyone knows who Chris Fletcher is because he did exactly what you're describing, Sanjay. He took immunohistochemistry and proved that, you know, essentially there's no such thing as malignant fibrous histiocytoma. Like it's not a real thing. It's melanomas and soft, you know, dozens of other diagnoses that once we can prove what their protein expression is, we can understand that, you know, that that's where these tumors come from. So I, I think that as you look, Kelly, at, individual fields, subspecialized fields, there are more, There, as Sanjay said, there are more names than you can count, but people will know in that field kind of who that turning point person was. And I always think of Dr. Flesher around soft tissue, although I would say there are a couple of other big names that are still contemporary with him that would disagree with me and say, no, I actually, you know, did Mm -hmm. that. So I think it's even subjective in who's using the evidence correctly, which is really fascinating. So another kind of similar question to what to what Kelly just asked, is around dogma, right? So can you think of concepts that were historically considered mainstream dogma, for example, in the practice of pathology, that we now know to be incorrect? And and that's a lot of where someone gets their big name, is they they think about a diagnosis or a set of tumors or a disease differently than everyone else has, and suddenly it changes our way of thinking. So are there some good examples of that lingering dogma that maybe even some people still think is true that we just now know are incorrect because of IHC or molecular or other things.
3: Yeah, I can speak to the issue of dogma. It actually starts, though, when I was a medical student. Uh, so that was back time. in 1922, right? Well, if I would, I would <laughs> like to say that I've covered the entire history of the ASCP, but I've only covered about 35 to 40 percent of it. Okay, uh, okay. <laughs> but this does, this does go back a ways, and I won't tell you how far. When I was a medical student, when I was at the VA Medical Center doing my surgery rotation, a lot of what the, surgeon, the attending surgeon there did was called selective vagotomies for patients who had ulcers. And they did these selective vagotomies because the idea was that patients were being stressed or dietary factors or other things were causing excess acid secretion. And the theory behind that was excess acid secretion was causing these ulcers in the stomach. And what they needed to do is reduce acid secretion. And they did that by severing the nerve that supplied, that innervated the stomach and therefore would reduce acid secretion once they had cut that part of the vagus nerve. They also ended up removing part of the stomach. And I can tell you there was a certain amount of morbidity associated with these operations. So I saw a number of these patients when I was a medical student. And that was just the assumption, that's how you had got an ulcer. Then it turns out many years later, And actually, it wasn't that later that the discovery was made, but it was a long time until it was embraced. An Australian pathologist named Robin Warren discovered an organism called H. pylori that colonized the stomach. And it is since that time people have accepted the idea that H. pylori is, in fact, infection with H. pylori is the leading cause of ulcers. And the difference is huge because, first off, instead of having an operation to cure the ulcer... You give people antibiotic therapy, multiple antibiotics, and that cures the uh, infection in most cases. And an offshoot of that is that the testing that we need to do for that consists of breath tests or stool antigen tests or serology, standard tests that we do in our chemistry lab or in the immunology lab. So it is now a mainstream pathology test. It is relatively non invasive. All you need is breath or a stool sample or some blood and then you give the patient antibiotics. And I should mention that Dr. Warren received the Nobel Prize along with his collaborator, Barry Marshall, who's a gastroenterologist also working uh, in the same center in Australia. I can't remember what year they won the Nobel Prize, but I think it was about 20 years ago. And Dr. Warren was actually a featured speaker at an ASCP meeting a number of years ago, which I attended, in which he described how he discovered H. pylori and the process by which that was finally accepted as a cause for stomach ulcers so going from too much acid to an infection going from surgery to antibiotic therapy i think that's a huge advance and proud to say that a pathologist was responsible for a lot of that
1: well and also from what from what you're describing the testing itself for h pylori has even changed since i've left the bench we were still doing the ure- uh, urease cartridges where they had to take like a little snippet biopsy of the stomach tissue So like what you're talking about, the serology, like you said, that's comparably non-invasive and
3: you get a result in in less than 24 hours. And they still make use of the urease concept because what they do is they they feed patients uh, a solution that contains carbon-13 labeled urea and then look for carbon-13 labeled CO2 that they expel in their breath. And that's the way that we do this test. Ah. And we we actually do that at, at our laboratory. We do a large volume of those tests. That's always been fascinating to me, just looking at
1: like the, the clinical bench side over the years. It's like um, the technologies get better, we get more efficient, but in a lot of regards, like say blood bank, that just comes top of mind. We're using the same concepts that they were using in the 1950s, right? Like the whole ABO cross typing, right? That, the concept itself hasn't changed. Methodology has changed, which I find just completely fascinating
0: yeah and i and i think there are there are good examples of you know things we we got right when we didn't know what we were doing that we still do because science has proven that they're right and then dr shriver's example of something that we changed because that was just not good for patients and and i think that you know as we as we think about 20 years from now is there anything we're doing today that we're going to be like you know that was wrong we shouldn't have done that i, I always get nervous about that and you know that's why i always want to be evidence based and and not use dogma And, you know, hearkening back to my comment about Chris Fletcher, one of the things that I learned at the Brigham, and I know that many academic centers train their residents this way, is is evidence-based diagnostics to not say, well, this is this way because so and so said it was, but to say this is this way because these are the five criteria that you need and this patient has those criteria. And I feel much more comfortable when I'm making a diagnosis if I have that to go on. But when I look at something, I'm like, oh, I know that's what it is, because that's what it looks like. I always am like, eh, you know, why do I know that? So it's a little bit, it's a little bit stressful.
1: Jumping off of that, just kind of how pathology and how laboratory medicine has changed over time. Can you guys speak to how the role of the pathologist has changed over time?
2: In terms of anatomic pathology, there's several things that we now are part of that didn't even exist in the, in the early days of of surgical pathology. I've also already briefly mentioned immunohistochemistry and molecular pathology, but let me mention one of the more recent things that we've become involved in, and that's immunotherapy. And, you know, immunotherapy is another one of those things where the dogma initially was that this thing is never going to work. And I'll give you the famous story is that of Dr. Ewing, you know, the same Ewing after with whom Ewing sarcoma is named. Dr. Ewing was what is now known as Memorial Sloan Kettering, and he was a big proponent of radiation in in sarcomas, you know, so he was the guy who, and he was the chief of the division at that point, he was featured on Time magazine, can you imagine a pathologist on, on the cover of Time magazine, he was a very famous guy. But at that time, there was a guy named Cooley, who used to say that maybe we could use some sort of, you know, immunotherapy based principles, in, in tumor, and he was really shot down by, by Dr. Ewing at that time. So the dogma at that time was no such thing as immunotherapy, and, you know, there's radiation for these things. Now, fast forward from that time to now, and now we have immunotherapy involved in so many different tumors, it's becoming the, the new sort of new hot concept. And so many of the things that were, were dogma at that time are falling, falling by the wayside. And now pathologists are involved directly in patient care in terms of choosing you know immunotherapy. So the one thing that we do a, a lot nowadays, at least in my field, is that we interpret this stain called PDL1, which is something that you know not everybody likes, but is, is something that we are very, very directly involved in patient care in, in the sense that, for example, in lung cancers, you know we could pick a, a tumor and interpret the immunohistochemistry as being 100 percent of tumor cells express PDL1. Those patients might not get any chemotherapy. So, you know, the old paradigm of giving chemotherapy in metastatic lung cancer has been completely flipped. So, some of these patients, based on that PDL1 level read by a pathologist, could get immunotherapy up front and no chemotherapy at all. And in fact, there's we now have evidence, you know, and this is real evidence. This is, you know, based on randomized phase three clinical trials. They've shown that actually. Some immunotherapy drugs are even better than chemotherapy in the first line setting in lung cancer, so that kind of thing is is completely new, and even one generation ago would not have been people wouldn't have even imagined that we would be doing that
0: yeah and and I think that this harkens back to there are a couple of things in there to unpack one is with let's just take one example, I won't name the drug, but there's one particular drug that has p d l one that needs to be interpreted for some tumors has MSI, that needs to be interpreted for other tumors. And for yet another group of tumors, it's just inherent. If that's the type of tumor you can give that drug, it's all the same drug, different tumors, different locations. And the pathologist has to sort all that out. They have to know all of that. They ha- And that's never been the case before. We used to you know, do a CD30 and we would say what that meant. Now we have to know what the clinician is thinking, what is going to benefit the patient and get the test result and then interpret it so that the clinician knows how to treat them. And where I think the biggest gap is in regard to that is that for years, for years? And Sanjay can argue with me about this. Um, <laughs> the 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 WHO blue books, right? Those tumor tra- those have nothing to do with treatment. Those are all about academic classification of tumors. And and the authors of those books will say we don't even think about NCCN guidelines when we write those chapters. But now they are now NCCN's like we really need to talk to pathologists and the the blue books are like, yeah, we really need to understand how these treatments work because we can't avoid this anymore. And I, I think it's great. I think this is the way we should be going, but it's happening so fast. It's happening so fast. In June of 2017, there were eight approvals for immunotherapies for cancer within two weeks of each other. And it wow. was four, that was six different drugs. Or
1: well, something. it sounds kind of like almost like these specialties are finally acknowledging like, hey, no, we have to work together
0: you know, in order to,
1: yeah, Yeah.
0: there's There's no choice. These
1: are not two distinct subspecialties of medicine. We have to work together to get the right patient, the right, right test and the right treatments at the right time. Yes. Can I jump
2: in with another example, guys? So we, you know, just because Dan mentioned that I, I, something else came to mind back in 2010, you know, we were in the lung cancer world. There was a thing called non-small cell carcinoma. And we could just call things non-small cell carcinoma. I grew up in that because I my residency was done in that atmosphere. I started my staff in 2007 when that was the atmosphere. It was non-small cell carcinoma. You didn't have to go any further because they were all treated the same. And the moment the EGFR drugs hit the market and people started, you know, that became available and ALK hit soon after that, everything changed. So exactly what Dan just said. The WHO said, oh, we we can't classify it and the antibodies are not right. And there's too little material. But the moment the clinical imperative hit and they said, we need to know which which ones are adenocarcinomas and which ones are not. In 2011, suddenly there were a bunch of papers that came out that said, well, we can do this. We can divide these into adeno and squamous. People started understanding what the importance of that is. And we, we responded, you know, so I think that happens a lot is that pathology responds to clinical needs and then changes diagnostic paradigms based on on the clinical but but i think it's it's therapeutic breakthroughs that push this like they've done with these uh, targeted therapies and also with immunotherapy
0: so dr schreiber on the on the cp side in the clinical lab how has instrumentation changed in the in the last you know 100 years history of acp or history of pathology and can you use an example test to illustrate the evolution and diversity of technology in the laboratory?
3: Uh, sure. Well, as I, as I already mentioned, I wasn't here 100 years ago, but I don't think there was any instrumentation back then. I think everything was done in test tubes with pipettes, kind of the way I did it in my chemistry labs. And by the way, that was a great deal of fun, but it took a long time to get any kind of a result. And then it wasn't until I would guess sometime either in the 50s or the 60s that any sort of Automation, not even automation, but any sort of you know instrumentation was developed for root. I was gonna say, testing. and then you're talking
1: like flame cytometers and stuff, right? That's not oh, anything close to what we were dealing with even in the well, 80s.
3: Spectrophotometers have been around for a while, ferometers have been around for a while, flame photometers, yes, those came along too. But again, you know, this is all one at a time sort of analysis. And it took a while before things got more advanced than that. I do remember as a medical student looking at a gigantic machine in the basement of the Bentab hospital in Houston that I was told was called the auto analyzer. And this thing had tubes and coils and colored fluids going through it and would run 20 samples at a time. You didn't have a choice. You ordered one test, you got all 20. That's just the way it worked. This auto sampler or auto, what was that called? Smack it was a Smack Auto. Oh analyzer, yeah, the Smack 20. Smack Auto Analyzer. That's history now. I don't even think you'd find them in, you know, you might find them in a museum somewhere that keeps lab equipment. But things moved on from there. By the time I became a resident, we were looking at automation for standard chemistry tests, things like electrolytes and enzymes. And what we had were multiple different platforms. There'd be one platform for the electrolytes, another platform for the enzymes, another platform for the hormones, which was actually being done by radio and so forth. And over time, these various platforms have come together so that now you just have a limited number of major manufacturers, and they sell large instruments that will run anywhere from 40 to 80 different analyses. It's, it's really quite incredible. And they do this in an automated fashion. And if you spend any time looking at them, what you see is a very rapid robot that's pipetting samples into cuvettes and picking up reagents and that sort of thing. It makes you dizzy after a while, but that's, you know, technically that's, that's what the instrumentation has come to. And uh, the result of all of this is that we can put out more results with greater precision and accuracy for a lower price. It's, as I said, it's not nearly as much fun as doing bench chemistry and using those pipettes and, and uh, volumetric flasks and so forth, but you get results that are much faster and much more reliable. So that I would say in general is, has been the trend of things. If I had to put my finger on a couple of technologies that made a big difference, first one I would talk about is immunoassays. We now have immunoassays that can measure any number of different molecules, small molecules, large molecules, proteins, and uh, other, you know, large molecules like that. Harkening back to when I was a resident, we used to do stat, well, I I won't call it a stat digoxin. It was more like a one-off digoxin or a one-off HCG. And these tests were done by radio So if, if a gynecologist said, I needed to know if this patient is pregnant, we'd have to do an HCG. Or if an emergency said, I think we have a patient with a digoxin poison, we need to get a digoxin level. What that means is we'd, I'd get a phone call at some time in the afternoon after the run was completed, and then we'd have to set up a run, which means five or six calibrators in duplicate, quality control material in duplicate, one patient sample in duplicate. After everything was pipetted, you would then let it incubate for the right amount of time. You'd put it into a counter to to count the radioactivity. You'd read the results, you'd graph them on a piece of graph paper, and eventually, maybe four hours later, we'd have a result for one digoxin. Well, that was the, I'll call it the early to mid 1980s. Nowadays, what you do is you take the sample, walk over to the analyzer, put it in the analyzer, less than an hour later, sometimes less than 30 minutes later, you have an HCG or a digoxin ready to report. So what has happened again, automation has just taken over as far as that goes and has put out results that are much, much easier to get, much more timely, and fortunately more reliable as well, which means we can do for the same amount of work, we can get 30 or 40 or 50 results as opposed to one result.
0: And I think that one of the I won't call it the tragedies, but one of the challenges of the success of automation and what you just described, which I think is miraculous for patients that we can turn around these tests so quickly, is that the lay public and often the administration of a hospital will assume that it's just a bunch of equipment. You just press a bunch of buttons and anybody can do it. And they don't realize that those lab pros that used to have to do all that work you just described for that digoxin, now what they're having to do is compliance and quality assurance and linearity testing and inventory management and you know all these dozens of things that have to keep the lab accredited and keep them compliant, as well as perform all that testing and you know, troubleshoot the machine if it goes down, or have an alternative method if the machine goes down, et cetera, et cetera. And so, when we when we look at the shortages of Of lab pros that we have in this country right now, a lot of people are like, oh, well, it's because automation, blah, blah, blah. But that's actually not not what it is. It's not that automation has driven people away. It's that the payment scheme to keep lab pros in you know employed in doing their job, it's there's a disconnect between what's required to run a lab, to keep a compliant lab there, and what we should, you know, what those the value of those people are. And what we're seeing now, which I think is is fantastic. And I was just talking with Jeff Jacobs in our policy office about this yesterday is that lab pros are commanding huge salaries now relative to what they used to get paid because labs are so desperate and they need people to, cause they realize they have to do this work. Like we can't, you know, you can't have an ER if you don't have a lab. And if you start shutting down ERs, their healthcare goes south and mortality goes up and you have big problems. So I think the value of lab pros, this has all been uncovered by COVID, but it, it was already there. It was, it was already a problem before COVID it's been uncovered. But I do think that the value of automation you know, as you described, it was not in parallel justified as the, the rest of the value, what the leverage is. As we took people off the bench, having to do that stuff, we gave them lots of other tasks and we, we did a terrible job of letting the health system know what they were doing and they got devalued. And I think that's where they're now over, They are valued. Well, hopefully, and that will continue to trend upward. But I do think that's part of the evolution of the lab pro, which I think, Kelly, is going to be a different podcast at some point, right? It Uh,
1: definitely has to be the evolution of the laboratory professional, because what you're saying, Dan, is absolutely right. You know, like lab pros have to do all of this compliance, blah, 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 blah. But they also still have to have that base of knowledge, right? They still have to know what goes behind the digoxin test. They still have to know the science. That's not changed. If anything else, it's become more complicated over the last 50 years. So. You know, because just like Sanjay and Wes have been talking about the evolution of like how pathology is changing or whatever, same thing with the lab pros. They have to keep up with the science. You know, it's not a static profession at all.
3: People take for granted that if the lab put out a result, it must be correct. And I'd like to say, yes, sure, it's correct. And 99 plus percent of the time, you'd be right. But that's because of the amount of work that goes into developing the test, making sure that it works properly, validating it doing quality assurance, all the things that you're talking about. That's why people can take for granted that they're getting good quality results. And if you let that stuff go, and if you let accreditation go, those things start to slip. And then when the mistakes start to happen, you wonder, how could this have ever come about?
1: It really doesn't take that much. And this was years ago. I I knew someone who had gone to the ER because she wasn't feeling well and got her blood drawn. And what happened was, and it's, it's a mistake that happens. It doesn't happen a lot, but it, it happens Whoever had drawn the blood mislabeled the tubes, and it came back that her glucose was seven hundred, well, they double checked it, and obviously it was it was a normal glucose, but she still talks about that error, you know like how 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 this place you know screwed up or whatever. So it really doesn't take a lot before confidence starts to slip, and that can obviously that can't
3: happen. We have an example here that seems may seem kind of trivial. Canada's cold, as you might know. And we do get samples that are, that are flown down from northern British Columbia down to the Vancouver area for us to do the analysis. Well, it turns out if a serum sample freezes and then it thaws out and you measure the sodium, the sodium is going to be low. And the reason is that the sodium is when you get the freezing and then the thawing, you don't have an even distribution of everything that's in there. And sometimes we'll get a run of samples that, with low sodiums. And You'll have to ask, what's going on here? Why are these people having critically low sodiums? It turns out the sample wasn't adequately mixed before we analyzed it. So I've gotten wise to that. And as a result, you know, when we get these critical values, the first thing we check is where the sample come from, was it properly mixed? And again, that's surveillance. That's what happens when you have people watching the system to make sure that these kind of errors don't slip through.
0: And I think the key, the last point I'll make Kelly, before we move on is that it's very hard to do all of that. If there's only one of you, right? If, if the FT is required to run a lab or four and you have two or you have one, mistakes will happen. It's impossible. If you're, the job of four people is being done by one person, that person is not you know, perfect. They can't do everything perfectly all the time. They're gonna make mistakes. And this is why staffing shortages are so critical because in order to avoid errors and have quality, you have to have adequate staffing. Number one rule, hands down.
1: I kind of want to circle back a little bit to what Sanjay said at the very beginning of the podcast about one of the major technologies being PCR testing. That's certainly the first thing that comes to my mind like how pathology and lab medicine has changed over the last 100 years. I think this could be really kind of illustrated by the two pandemics, right, that have kind of bookended these 100 years. I mean, the 1918 pandemic, obviously, as we all know, was caused by an influenza virus, but they didn't even know it was a virus until the 30s. For a long time, they thought these people were dying of Haemophilus infections because that's what they could detect. Well, you know, flash forward to 2020, we knew it was a virus and had the sequencing and had a diagnostic test within weeks of the very first cases, which is just crazy and phenomenal when you think about it. So can you guys talk about the the evolution of molecular testing in the last
3: 40, 20 years or so?
2: Yeah. Dr. Schreiber, do you want to address lab medicine? And then I can talk a little bit about uh, search path.
3: Thank you. I'll just say a few things. The areas in which molecular testing has made a big difference are microbiology, genetics, and cancer. And cancer tends to be the domain of the anatomic pathologist. So I think I will just leave that one. But in microbiology, the labs are moving from looking at phenotypic characteristics, namely, you know, what sugar is fermented or does this organism split urea or, you know, what are the growth factors, that sort of thing, to molecular analysis of the genome of the bacteria. And this is giving tremendous information about not just what organism you're dealing with, but various subtypes as well. And that's been applied to viruses as well as bacteria. So that has been a huge, uh, a huge jump forward in terms of what the microbiologists can do. On the genetic side, what we've used in the past for, and still do to some extent for genetic diagnosis, is looking at patterns of metabolites from people who may have genetic disorders. Sometimes looking at proteins, if that gives us the information that we need. The opportunity to look at the genome and actually find abnormalities in the genome itself and see where the mutations in the DNA are that are that are responsible for these genetic disorders gives a definitive diagnosis and it also gives you a marker that you can use through families. Uh, I studied an obscure group of disorders called porphyrias, got into molecular technology because I wanted to know what were the mutations that were causing uh, acute intermittent porphyria in various families, because we were already doing the biochemical tests. And we were able to find mutations in a number of families, and then once we had the mutation, we were able to follow that through family members and find out who was affected and who was not. That's just one small example, but the point is that you can apply that to any genetic disease, and that's being done routinely now uh, throughout the world. Sanjay,
2: there's a very massive shift into uh, molecular testing in in uh, surgical pathology, and I'll just uh, give you an example of. When I went into my first residency, it was 1999. There was absolutely no molecular testing for anything going on anywhere in, at least in in India. When I moved to Syracuse, uh, this was about 2002, there was a a tumor we tested. It's called an extra skeletal myxoid chondrosarcoma. And, you know, at that time there wasn't even, we didn't have even fish for that. We had to do conventional cytogenetics. We had to literally look at the chromosomes on a, you know, look at the chromosomes and figure out which one is shorter and which one is longer. You know, From that stage, it's gone on to fish. From fish, it's gone on to, you know, various forms of PCR. From PCR, it's gone on to next generation sequencing. So, you know, the big changes, I think, happened around 2002, when BRAF was found in a whole sequence, you know, series of cancers. Then EGFR around 2004 was found in a whole series of cancers. Between 2004 and 2010, you know, that science advanced and it turned out that, you know, there were drugs available for that. And so testing has really exploded, I think, since about 2010, 2011, and has moved, Kelly, from just basic PCR to now n- large next generation sequencing based platforms. So you don't test things one by one anymore. In fact, that's now becoming more or less accepted that instead of testing things one by one, it's better to just test, multi, you know, one big, large panel, and those panels are you know becoming incredible in in some institutions, the panels are you know five, six, seven gene panels, but some uh, commercial panels are like six hundred gene panels, you know, even some large academic centers have uh, gene panels that are in the hundreds. So you know this kind of move has radically transformed testing in lung cancer, which I do you know every late stage lung cancer gets a molecular panel at least if it's non-squamous. Now we are moving into earlier and earlier stages as as it's beginning to affect those, you know, melanoma gets molecular testing, colorectal cancer gets molecular testing. Molecular testing has completely revolutionized lymphomas and leukemias. So it's really moved into every sphere of our practice now.
0: Yeah. And I, and I think there's a a couple of really important pieces to unpack in there. and, And I appreciate that quick history of that because i think it has it i mean i started residency in 2000 and for sure over my five years in residency i saw massive changes and certainly the 10 years that i was in practice at the brigham you know lots of changes happening constantly and fortunately i was lucky enough to be in a center where the leaders of those changes were happening and now those things that I saw you know, late in my residency, early in my faculty are now mainstream as you're describing and it's, and it's a lot of that going on. I, I think one of the important points is that the bulk of tumors still in the United States, even today, the bulk of tumors are still diagnosed with histology and molecular is tested on a lot of people, but the benefit is not yet where it needs to be for all of those patients. And so I think we have a lot of work to do to find more targetable mutations for these drugs. And the other, the other comment I wanted to make is that it, it becomes very clear economically, very quickly that sequencing is much cheaper than doing even 20 PCR tests, right? It's just. It just becomes so much faster, but you have to deal with that data, and I think that's where our gap is. And I'm not I'm not jumping ahead. We'll get to the question later, but I think that's where the big the big gap that's been created by the molecular revolution in pathology is. We didn't have enough workforce to begin with on the technical or the pathologist side. Now we have an incredible amount of information for every patient, and no tools to analyze that to the degree that that patient deserves. And I think that's where we we really need to move this revolution not to change the subject, but to get into a little bit of a different subject. When we think about the the current demographics and the average laboratory in the US, it's predominantly women. And depending on what city it is, there, there actually can be quite a significant number of minority women that are part of that workforce. So has the laboratory profession historically been ahead of the curve on diversity? Why or why not?
2: Dr. Schreiber, you want to take that? I have some thoughts about it, but mostly on the search path side.
0: I have,
3: I have a variety of contradictory thoughts, and maybe I'll share one or two of them with you. Um, my, <laughs> first, my first thought is sitting in the ASCP boardroom that contains the pictures of all the past presidents up, up on the wall. And I looked at that wall, and I said, wow, what a collection of great pathologists, but they were all white men. <laughs> It's it's I, it's been it's been a topic of conversation, yeah. And, and I thought, I guess that's how you know you've made it—is you get you get the picture on the wall. But again, you know, if you're if you're looking at leadership, half the population is women, and there are many different colors, and they aren't all white. The point being that if you want true, uh, you know, representation in your leadership, that's what you would expect to see. And there it was—all these distinguished white men, older white men, on the wall if you were to look at that wall today and i haven't been in that boardroom for a while i think they may have run out of space but if you were to look at that if you were to look at that wall now you'd see more women on it and that certainly is an improvement not quite in proportion to their numbers in the organization however aside from that i would say that pathology because of the nature of the work from the pathologist's point of view i think offers opportunities for women who also want to raise families because it's easier to work part time or to job share or to do things of that sort if they have child rearing responsibilities. And the same goes for men, by the way, because some guys like to stay at home and look after kids as well. So it does have that opportunity built in because of the way that the work can be done. And then if you take a look at the technologist workforce, that has traditionally been mostly female. Uh, and I don't think that's changed. I think that's still primarily women who are in the technology workforce. So I'll leave it there and Sanjay, I'll hand it over to you.
2: Yeah, these are really very good observations. You know, I, I will say that I, I don't, let me say what I don't know. And I don't know if we are ahead of the curve. That that I really don't know. Is pathology, for example, ahead of surgery? But it, it certainly is true that there are way more women. I mean, I, I think that there are more women in pathology in general uh, starting from my early experiences, you know, when I st- started pathology, there was a you know a large number of women in my first residency. the The chair of my program was a woman. My you know the heads of many of the programs were women. When I went into my second residency, my mentor was a woman. My teacher was a woman. The the chief of our department was a woman. Then when I went to my next job, I was hired by a woman. You know, so there's there's actually a lot of women in pathology and very very significant roles what I don't quite understand is why the pictures on the walls are all white men <laughs> if there are so many women in pathology. I think yeah we don't understand why Why that is maybe it's just beginning to catch up but certainly we do need more women in leadership roles not just in in you know the bread and butter roles and I, I don't understand why that happens and certainly and we have we're just talking about women actually the vast majority of them are white women uh, so minority women are even less, and I think uh they're more and more are becoming visible now, but they're too few, I think. That it needs to be more. It needs to be more of that.
0: Yeah, thank you, thank you both for saying that. And and I I feel like, you know, I I have a very and I'm not gonna go into my own history, but I have a very strong bias towards active correction of of inappropriateness or you know, actively working towards changing that ratio as an example. I've had probably 20 to 25 mentees in my career, almost all of whom are women and more than half of whom are women of color. And that was on purpose, right? That, that was not an accident. That wasn't a coincidence. That was by design because I want more women and more women of color in science, right? And so I st- actively strove to make them successful and help them move to where they need to be in their career. But when we look at what Dr. Schreiber was describing, which I've had that exact same feeling he had in sitting in the boardroom. And you can do that in any boardroom in any organization in the United States. It is not an ASCP problem. It is an institutionalized problem of the country. That that is called institutional bias. And and the idea that you have, we did a podcast on this not too long ago, but the idea that you have the upper echelon C-suite of a company Whatever it is, a laboratory, whoever, and that's represented by white men, and everyone working in the lab is a woman or a woman of color. That's inappropriate. Like the leadership should reflect the team, and and you have to work on that. You have to actively have HR and your leadership saying when we replace this position, we need to make sure that we're representing the troops up there. And it's not affirmative action. It's not you know it's not any of those terms that people get upset about or traditionally you know were used to try to correct these things. Just to do. Institutionally, it's just recognizing that it's not appropriate for the leadership to not reflect who's on the team. It it, dis- it causes disconnect and it's really challenging. And so for for ASCP as an organization, we've taken that to heart and are trying to trying to think about how we can move that forward. But when we look at our lab pros out there in the community and know who they are, and we look at leadership, I do personally believe, and, and I ask anybody to argue with me and comment on the podcast that wants to, I do believe that we do a pretty good job, not a perfect job, but we do a pretty good job in pathology of having good representation of women in leadership overall. I think there are pockets where it could be improved, but I think if you look at chairs of departments, there are more women chairs in pathology than there are in other specialties. I think there are some exceptions like maybe OB and pediatrics might have more of a skew, but we're getting there, right? And certainly we're doing better than some of the very, I won't name names, but some of the very masculine specialties, if we have to say it that way. Uh, But there's always room for improvement. And so, you know, if you're out there in laboratory land and you are looking around your bench and the people around you look like you and the people leading you don't look like you, say something about it, make it clear to leadership that you wanna be represented and you wanna have your voice heard, and I think it's really, it's really crucial. To Absolutely.
1: I, I'm, I'm going to jump in here a little bit, Dan, because I've definitely had that experience working on the bench where the workforce is 85% women and the leadership's 50% men. You know, it's not reflective of of who's doing the work or whatever. So yeah, I think it's important to have these kind of conversations, right? Because if you just don't, if you pretend it's not a problem, it's never going to change because why would it? Another thing I'm going to say, uh, I'm going to give a shameless plug to uh, AJCP, the journal. There, we've got a paper coming out in a few weeks. It's a really interesting look at the major pathology societies and who gets the awards. Essentially, it's like they, they looked at the gender breakdown of the membership and then the gender breakdown of who gets their major awards. It's a very illuminating look at how things have changed over years, but, how, but frankly, how much further we all have to go. So we've been talking a lot about obviously change and innovation and how that's changed pathology and laboratory medicine. What kind of lessons can we learn from that, from that sort of change and innovation that's happened over the years and will continue to happen? What lessons do we learn?
2: Let me jump in here. You know, one I actually will build on something Dr. Schreiber mentioned, which is the H. pylori story, you know, and the H. pylori story is basically two people. (laughs) It's basically was I think was an internist and a pathologist. And I think a lot of the big discoveries were like that. I mean, it's just very, very persistent people who dared to think outside the box and were just completely not swayed by current dogma. Another great example is Jim Allison. Uh, Jim Allison is a harmonica playing guy from Texas. You know, if you look at him, you would never think that he's a, a scientist, let alone a Nobel Prize winner but he's a Nobel prize winner. He, he worked in a small lab in Texas, nobody knew him and he did just groundbreaking work. It discovered the protein T cell receptor, then did work on CTLA four. He's basically the the founder of immunotherapy in many ways. And, you know, the basic discovery that that immunotherapy worked for melanomas was made by him and another one of his graduate students. It's two people. So, you know, I'll take the unpopular view and I'll, let me just say, I'll take the unpopular views and say that it's not really always about big teams and big data and big organizations and, you know, uh, massive databases. I think the most significant breaks in dogma and discoveries come from individuals who refuse to buy the current dogma and chart their own path. That, that's my view, and I'm going to stick to it.
3: <laughs> well, I'm going to back you up on that. When I look back on my career and the things that I've done, I always try to look at successful people as, as good examples, You know, people that are worth emulating. And some of these successful people went through conventional routes and did what was expected, and by being good at it, were able to get promoted and get the awards and, and uh, recognition that they were looking for. But then you have the mavericks. You have the people who went out there and decided, this just doesn't make sense to me. I'm going to do this my way. I have an idea. I'm going to follow it. And so you're talking about people with original thought, innovative thinkers. This is what this fellow Allison that you're talking about. Somebody who said, I've I think I can see a different way. I'm going to pursue this. And as I've gotten as I've gotten farther along, I have gotten more into the idea of the Mavericks as opposed to the conventional thinkers, because I think that's where progress is coming from. So, uh, what I would do—I guess uh, this is a, not much of a soapbox, but I'm going to stand on it anyway. And what I would tell people to do is do what you have to to succeed and get by, but ultimately, it's your original ideas, it's the things that you can think of that other people aren't working on that may hold the key to progress going forward. And I, I would absolutely encourage people to use their imaginations and think creatively about that.
0: Very well said, both of you. I appreciate that. And I will, I will play devil's advocate and say that from my worldview, which is, I would, I would argue that I definitely have a maverick point of worldview. And so I can be, I can be completely wrong. You can tell me that, but from my worldview, diversity of thought is what's important, right? Yes, you absolutely have mavericks and history proves them to be right. And you have mavericks who are wackos that history proves to be wrong. And that's totally fine. The point is that everyone should be able to have that diversity of thought and explore it on their own and develop their own intellectual ideas and test them and then put those tests out there for peer review to see who's there. And sometimes we get shot down and we have to wait 30 years to be vindicated, but that's okay because eventually, you know, it will happen. But that, that middle of the road, as you were describing, Dr. Schreiber, sort of, I won't say academic model, but that middle of the road—you know, let's just do what everybody else did, and have our lab, and do our experiments, and have students, and you know, get the accolades, and be on you know, all the committees, blah blah blah—and that's success. That, to me, I think I don't—I don't want to get into the details of it and, and get in trouble, but that to me is part of the challenge for those mavericks, right? Is that there's so much of that. That when they have a creative idea, there's just this overwhelming wave of noise that shuts them off, and and if, if, even if they're a wacko and they're wrong, or they're a maverick and they're right, it doesn't matter because that you know that pushes. And as we move into social media, and this gets into our last question, as we move into what's happened with social media, and I would say, over the last twenty years, fifteen to twenty years, but also really amplified in the last five years, we've understood we now understand the the damage that that wave of, of discontent or that wave of dogma can have even for real science with solid knowledge behind it. And so I think we have a real challenge ahead of us. So our, our last question to the two of you, which I would love for both of you to answer, is where do we go from here? What does the next hundred years of pathology and laboratory medicine look like?
2: Dr. Scheiber?
3: <laughs> I'll go after okay. you. Okay. You, you let me lead off on this one. Well, I hope to be here to look back on the next hundred years of pathology and laboratory medicine. It seems highly unlikely that I'll make it, but I'm an optimist nonetheless. You know, it's so hard to know what's going to happen next. What's, what's going to be the next big thing? Uh, it seems like we've conquered so many of uh, biology's secrets and so much we've come so far in terms of applying things in medical practice. What could be next? I wish I could give you the big prediction of what's going to happen. And I will actually give you one big prediction because this is something that, I, got, <laughs> that I, have, I have raised before and people look at me like I'm crazy. Again, thinking back to a dinner at the AACC more than 30 years ago, American Association for Clinical Chemistry meeting, there was a group of us talking about blood gas analysis and electrolytes and that type of stuff. And I said, you know, you know what we really need? We need a tricorder, just like they have on Star Trek. You know, something with a probe, you just hold it up and it twirls around and makes that sound. And then after it's done that, it tells you what your PO2 and your pH and your, and your PCO2 are, and it'll give you a readout of your electrolytes and a few key proteins. It was a dinner, by the way, and the conversation completely stopped. People looked at me, and then about five seconds later, it picked up again as if I hadn't said a thing. <laughs> <laughs> so so I learned I learned some important lessons that night one of which is this is not the way to become popular. Uh, <laughs> however, they did let me finish my dinner and I guess I should be thankful for that. So if I'm going to make one prediction and it's relevant to the work that I do, it is true non-invasive diagnostics is coming. I wish I could tell you what it's going to look like and I wish I could tell you when, I just don't know.
2: Yeah. Those are great answers. I mean, let me approach it in a different way. Let me tell you what I think is likely to come. And then another thing that I think is uh, more in line with what Dr. Schreiber said. So I think what what is most likely to come, this is very easy, is AI. You know, this is coming. Whether we need it or not, we're going to have more digital pathology. We're going to have more you know, whole slide imaging, we're going to have more AI based applications and everybody knows that artificial intelligence is coming, is going to make things, whether it's going to make things easier or harder, how quickly it'll come, what things it'll be useful in, who knows? Like Dr. Schreiber said, it's very difficult to to predict exactly what the future is going to be. But I actually agree with him on another angle is that actually the most breakthrough things will be things we cannot imagine now like always happens. You know, it's not going to be more AI, then more AI and more AI and cancer will be cured. That's not how it's going to happen. People are going to think of something else, which we completely cannot even imagine today. And I think that's what's going to be the future. You know, the next big thing will be something different than immunotherapy or liquid biopsy and all that. Think of weird things uh, along the lines of non-invasive diagnostic. Think of you walk into your grocery store and a scanner, it scans not only who you are through your retina, but it also gives you three or four of your genetic abnormalities, tells you what your blood tests are, tells you what kind of cancers are going, you know, that kind of weird stuff is coming down the future. And that's what's going to be really exciting. You know, things we just cannot imagine in the current day DNA.
1: Oh, yeah, I tend to agree. I always, one of my kind of like life maxims is you don't know what you don't know. Right. And we don't know what we're going to know in 70 years. Yeah. So that makes it really hard to predict what's what's the profession going to, what are these professions going to look like 50 years from now? Because the testing that they're going to be doing 50 years from now, we haven't even thought of yet. We don't even know
0: it exists. Thank you guys so much for those comments. And I do think that the take-home message is there are operational efficiencies, which is what you're talking about, Sanjay, with more and more AI. There are transformative innovations For example, the discovery of H. pylori was was definitely transformative. And then there are disruptive innovations that we have not had in pathology in 100 years. And I think that's that for me, that's what I tell people is there is a disruptive innovation coming. I don't know if it's going to be multi cancer early detection, being able to screen 100 cancers from a single drop of blood or if it's going to be something similar to that, or it's going to be a machine that you walk in and it just zaps all the cancers out of your bodies but there will be a disruptive innovation because the technology that's fueling what we're doing in pathology is over 100 years old and and we still use that base technology and we've definitely improved, you know, our technologies elsewhere. So I, th- I think, and if you look at any other medical specialty, that isn't true. You know, except for the stethoscope, there's really not anything that's still around that we did hundred years ago that we still do. So I do think pathology is right. And I'm talking about anatomic pathology specifically, Dr. Schreiber is ripe for a disruptive innovation. And I don't know exactly what that's gonna be, but I think that will happen in my lifetime. And that's my prediction.
1: Thank you guys so much for taking the time to talk with us today. One of my favorite things about hosting these podcasts is just learning so much from the great guests that we have, and today is no exception. I want to remind our listeners to tell your colleagues about the podcast and also to subscribe through your favorite podcast
0: aggregator. And please don't forget that you can receive CME or CMLE credit for listening to our podcast by looking for Inside the Lab in the ASCP store or on our website at www.ascp.org. Thank you and hear you next time.